Blog Talk Radio. Welcome all truth seekers from across the globe. This is Reverend Karen L. Heasley from the Spiritual Path Church of Newcastle, Pennsylvania in the United States. Our truth seeker show covers a variety of subjects from angels to afterlife communication to parapsychology to spiritualism to near-death experiences to meditation and a number of other truth-seeking topics. We are happy you have chosen to join us for this episode and hope you find it informative and enjoyable. After our chat tonight with Dr. Marjorie Roth, we will be taking calls. Now, get a piece of paper and a pencil and write this number down. 657-383-0416. I'm going to repeat that number again. 657-383-0416. Dr. Marjorie Roth was born in Kenosha, Wisconsin where she studied music until coming east for graduate school. She has earned doctoral degrees in historical musicology and in flute performance and literature from the Eastman School of Music following a year in Vienna, Austria on a Fulbright research grant. Dr. Roth began a full-time appointment at Nathers College in Rochester, New York, where she is now a full professor of music history and studio flute and serves as a director of the honors program. Dr. Roth, it's a pleasure to have you tonight. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be on your show. And I met Dr. Roth up in Lilydale. She did um, <clears throat> she did a presentation on mediumistic uh, music. But I want to talk a little bit about you, Dr. Uh, how did you become interested in music? Well, I come from a really musical family. You know, both my parents, I think, were far better musicians than I will ever be. And they were sort of untrained musicians. They played and sang by ear. And so we always had music in my house the whole time I was growing up. And when I was little, they did give me uh, lessons, flute lessons on the piano, and um, flute lessons and piano lessons. And then it just seemed to me the natural thing to do when I, it was time to go to school, if I had to go to college, I would go for music. I hadn't really planned on going um, to college at all, actually, but my mother came one day to my job at a farm where I was picking beans and working in a bean field and very happy. I, I had decided that agricultural work was going to be my life and that's where I was going to stay. And my mother came and hauled me out uh, of the bean field. In, I was covered in dirt, and she had my flute in the back of the car, and she said, come on, college starts next week, and you're going to go audition for the music program at a local university. And I said, no, I'm not. And she said, yes, you are. And I did. I went in. I was all covered with dirt from the field, and I played a little bit, and they said, okay, you're in. And at much to my shock, I started college the very next week. And once I got there, I sort of realized that music really was the right place for me to be and college was also the right place for me to be if I wanted to have a life in that field. 
That's that's wonderful. And your mother made that all happen. She did. She did. Had my mother not forced me out of my little nook of what I wanted to do, if she hadn't come in and done her sort of Italian mama thing and said, nope, <laughs> I know this music thing is for you and you're going to do it. If she hadn't done that, my life would be very different today. If you don't mind me asking about her, what, did she play any musical instruments by chance? She did. She did. She played the violin, um, and she played all by ear. And she was there's a fabulous story, family story about her. My mom had an amazing musical ear, and when she was very, very little, she saw a violin in a pawn store window, and she saved and saved and saved until she got that thing. And when she picked it up, she knew how to play it. She had vibrato, everything. She, it was just uncanny what she was able to do on that instrument. And she played all her life just by ear. And really, now that I'm a professional musician and I teach students that study the violin and have worked very, very hard on it, I realized that my mom was a, a very strange animal when it came to that violin. She already knew how to play that thing before she even picked it up as a kid. Wow. That's really amazing. How about your father? Did he play any instrument? My dad... My my dad had a beautiful bass voice, unbelievably good. Again, neither of my parents read music. They really didn't. Right. We all just we sort of harmonized around the dish, the, the sink at night while we were doing dishes, and that's really where I mm-hmm. learned music was from mm-hmm. doing that. But my dad had a beautiful bass voice, and he played the accordion. And I think the one thing I inherited from my dad musically was a very strong sense that music was something that not only can you perform it for people, but music was something that was deeply, deeply personal and spiritual to a certain extent, because my dad would only play the accordion when we left the house. When all the crazy women left the house and went out for an evening, we'd come home in the car and we'd hear him through the walls playing. And he'd been, he'd been there the whole night all by himself in the house, just playing and playing. And now that, again, now that I'm older, I really understand that. I have all, I have degrees, a master's degree and a performance or a doctoral degree Mm -hmm. in performance. Mm -hmm. But really my favorite thing is to play when I'm alone. I love rehearsals, and I love to play alone. The performance, not so much. It seems it's a little, I don't know, it lacks something spiritual for me in the, in, the, in the high realm of performance. So both of my parents, I think I got some gifts from them and also some ideas about music from them. I think playing alone, you just get into yourself more. You don't have to worry about your performance when you're you're playing alone. Wouldn't you uh, agree with that, Marjorie? I would. I would say that. And I, this really has, I think, a lot to do with, with sort of the things that your show is all about. I think that music, music in a performance, one of the reasons I quit playing the piano as a child is because I wanted a door on the practice room so that no one could hear me. I wanted to be in there with the sounds by myself, relating to those sounds. And those sounds would always carry me to a, a kind of a spiritual place. And right. I felt a little bit invaded when I knew that people were listening to me. And mm-hmm. my mother said at one point, she said, okay, look, you know, we're paying for the piano lessons. We're going to hear you practice. And I said, okay, then I'm giving up with the piano. I'll stay with the flute because I can pick the flute up and go outside by myself in the woods and play. And you can't hear me. So I really, I actually loved the piano more than the flute, but it was the fact that I could take the flute off and use my music as kind of a way to transport myself to a different spiritual level, which I could do when I was alone, but I didn't feel comfortable doing when I was in a concert hall or when I was playing so that someone could evaluate my playing in terms of technique or sound or something. It's, very, it's two very different ways of using music. 
that's interesting. I've heard that when when people paint, um, they go into a higher vibrational plane as well. They get within themselves. Yeah, I would believe that. And actually, this plays out a little bit with my students. You know, I teach at Nazareth College, and I've got right. some students who are performance majors, and those kids are focused on the art of music, you know, the fine art of music as being mm-hmm. something that is grounded in technique and virtuosity. And that's great. I, and all of my friends at Eastman in the DMA program there were, were like that. But then I've got these other students, especially my students in music therapy, and for them, they understand that they need to play their instrument well, but the outcome or the goal of making music for them is very, very different. It's not technical expertise or virtuosity, or any kind of uh, acclaim that comes to them because they're a great player. They're, they're, they have different fish to fry. They're using music as a way to heal, and a way to heal people yes. physically and also spiritually. So they're an interesting kind of group. Of course, I have all these kids in the same music history class. So it's, a, it's an interesting mix. It is an interesting mix, but doesn't it make it more enjoyable for you to teach, having different uh, points of view and the way uh, kids look at that? Absolutely. You know, I, I was trained as a music as a musicologist, a music historian. So I have all my facts and my terms and my technique and my repertoire in mind. And for a while, I taught some students when I was a graduate student assistant. I taught music students in performance at the Eastman School of Music. And I found those kids to be amazing musicians, but they all came from the same place. Then when I started mm-hmm. working at Nazareth, my whole pedagogy changed because I had students in my classroom from so many different walks. I mean, we have music business students. We have music theory students, music therapy students, music education students, music performance students, a few musical theater students. And now I've got composition students, which, again, makes it a whole different. I learn from my students every single year that I have to approach my discussion of music history in a way that makes it usable to them and meaningful for them. And I think that works out well for everyone because I've got, you know, music composition kids who come in and never heard of music therapy before, and they learn a lot from the therapy kids and vice versa. So it's a really great environment. I I really like having a classroom full of different kinds of students. Because like I said, it brings so much more to the table for everybody, doesn't it? Diversity. There's a lot to talk about. No, I'm. I I bet there is. I find that. And you said you had music business students. Are they business yeah, majors, have some, or they're? I'm just curious. Well, it's 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 a combination program. It's very interesting. It's only about I think maybe it's 15 years old, maybe a little older than that at okay. Nazareth. But the students who come in who want to do music business are students that are headed for. Um, most, I have, for example, I have one student who's an amazing performer, uh, pop music performer, pop, jazz, that kind of thing, and he has a band. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. he came in in the music business program mainly because he wanted to learn how to become a businessman and protect himself as a as a performer going out there starting a business. You know, having a band is kind of like having a business. Um, so he came in, brilliant student in music theory, and also he was a great composer. And he wound up picking a degree in comp- picking up a degree in composition as well. So mm. it's really funny when they come in. You know, they find their own little niche, and because we have so many different kinds of students, and they're all packed into the same music history and music theory classes together, all their little borderlines start to break down. 
and they start bleeding over into each other's areas. And that's how you really build an individual career in music. Yes. That's fascinating. That's really, it is. And I know that music is very much a healing uh, property. It really is for people. It just it is, and I, I think all of our students know that, not just the music therapy students. They just happen to use that professionally. But I think all of us who go into music, who decide to have a life in music, realize that it takes making music takes you to a place that is peaceful and healing and calming, and it's a way to let out a lot of things that you may not be able to say verbally. Mm-hmm. I like that. I like that answer more. I, I like that. Thank you. And so you talked a little bit about, about um, why you why you picked the flute for your instrument of choice because you could go out right and take it outside and be alone, right? Yeah, yeah. And Was also, I have switching say, between the two, or do you do both? Oh no, not at all, not at all. But I must say, the piano the piano gave me a very good grounding in music that I think I may had may not have been able to do if I'd started on an instrument that was only melodic, you know, the flute is only melody. The piano gives you harmony and that idea of harmony of sounds that work together, that coordinate and work together to make things beautiful. I learned that on the piano as music, but that Mm -hmm. idea expanded out as a harmony, as sort of a social condition or a relationship condition, you know, many things are harmonic, not just music. You know, politics can be harmonic. Marriages can be harmonic. Um, career choices can be harmonic. That idea of harmony was really introduced to me mo- first by the piano. And now in my old age here, um, I'm can, I've made my life as a flutist, but I'm starting to study piano again now. Piano and harmony and counterpoint is just for fun. Oh. So I sort of come back to my roots here in understanding yeah. that harmony is my goal in life. That, yeah, harmony with voices too, as well as uh, is something too. Yeah, uh-huh. harmony with. I I would recommend for anybody, it's not, playing instruments are nice is a nice thing to do. But in when I was in graduate school, I sang in a little musicologist um, singing group. We sang a lot of Renaissance sacred music and oh, secular music. Oh, did you? Oh, it was really nice. Interesting. And it that idea of the voice using the voice as a way to create harmony is a different experience than doing it with an instrument. You know, your, your voice is more immediate. Your voice is your own body. There's nothing in the middle. And also, it also involves the breath a little bit more than some instruments mm-hmm. and that idea of music and breath and the connection of the physical mind body thing through the breath comes really, really strongly when you play the flute and when you sing. That uh, Yeah. Wow. And okay, and so why did you pick Nathers College to um to teach at? What drew you there? Well, you know, honestly, I it's either the answer to that is to say that either it was a complete accident or to say that it was really fate. And if I ask myself about this, which I do often, I would have to say it was probably fate. I mean, I came out here to go to school at the Eastern School of Music, but almost immediately opportunities to teach at Nazareth part-time started to happen. And by the time I was in my doctoral degree for musicology, a position opened up there. And I had already been teaching flute lessons there to the college kids for 13 years. 
and a, a real full-time position opened up in musicology with so tenure track, the whole thing, even health insurance. And I was in Vienna at the time on my Fulbright uh, research grant year, but I applied, I came home, I applied for the job and I thought, Oh, I'll never get this. And then I got it. So Nazareth and Nazareth has really been the place that has shaped my own career, you know, coming out of a sort of conservatory like place like Eastman, it would have been very possible for me to go forward full steam ahead as a scholar and a performer and that's it. But Nazareth had so many of these other very liberal arts oriented kinds of things and also those professional programs like education and therapy that the whole Mm -hmm. shape of my career adapted a little bit to the personality of Nazareth as an institution. And I'm actually very happy about that. Then it seemed to be the place for you to be. It just seemed like it. And and it was all, it was kind of effortless. You know, they, it just little jobs opened up and I applied for them and I, I would think, Oh, there's no reason I should get this. And then I got it. And after a while it sort of started feeling like, yeah, I think this is where I'm meant to go and I will develop myself musically the way I want to at this place. But in the meantime, I'll also be able to give students some things that they need so they can become musicians. So I think it's worked out well for everyone. Yes. And you do a lot of research and papers on things too, don't you, uh, Margaret? Didn't you do a paper on Renaissance music? You do some papers on I, it? Or? Yes, my... My dissertation is really about Renaissance, a certain one composer and one particular piece of music um, in in Italian musical culture, Renaissance culture. So that's my my main scholarly thrust is there. But then I've kind of accidentally wound up getting interested in lots of other little things, and so every couple of years I branch out into a new little area and give a paper on that. Yeah, I've noticed that by your um, biography. Okay, and did you teach? I thought I saw this on your uh, biography. You teach? Did you teach in uh, Austria and Italy? Do you teach over there? Oh yes, this is also nice. Um, kind of as a result of an accidental, again accidental. Everything seems accidental, except it can't be accidental. Um, when I was in graduate school, I took a class with a German professor, a professor who specialized in German music, and she invited an Austrian graduate student to come to Eastman and give a talk. And we sat in class one day and she said, okay, he's very poor. He's young. He's poor. Like all of you are, and he can't afford to come to the United States and stay in a hotel. So we're not going to have class until one of you volunteers to put him up for the whole five or six days that he's here. And there was the predictable dead silence in the class and I couldn't stand it. And I finally said, okay, fine, I'll do it. I'll do it. (laughs) <laughs> and that was how I met my colleague, Michael, and meeting him led me first to getting my Fulbright grant in Austria. And then second, mm-hmm. we reconnected again about, I don't know, 15 years ago and decided it might be nice to team teach a class every two years in the summer. And so that's how my Nazareth students now get overseas for a class. Every other year, I take about anywhere from 12 to 16 students to Austria and Italy, and Michael and I essentially walk them through the life that we lived, lived together when I was in Vienna that year. So it's, it's very nice. When, what type of class do you teach over there for them that they come over well, and take? Well, it's essentially a music history class. It's on music and mm-hmm. culture in Austria and Italy. And so the students who go with me there have already had one year of music history, so they know their basics. 
they pretty much know all the musical genres and the forms and the techniques and the styles. So they're familiar with that. And then we take them sort of to ground zero. You know, it's one thing for us in America to read, uh, those of us who study classical music, we read all about that's where our music comes from. It comes from essentially Mm -hmm. Western Europe. And we read about it. But it's one thing to read about it. And it's another thing to actually go stand in the concert hall where Beethoven's Third Symphony premiered. Or go to an archive and work with manuscripts in the composer's own hand. You know, that's a very, very different experience than studying music sort of secondhand, like we do over here. So what we do with the students there is we go to concerts, we take them to archives, we take them to exhibitions. Um, Michael is a dancer, so usually there's at least one concert where they have to dance. They have to learn Renaissance dance or Baroque dance and do it on stage, sometimes when they're just off the plane and still jet-lagged. Um, so they, they get an idea of what culture, what, how classical music fits into European culture in a way that is much more natural than it is here in the United States. Now, that is something that you go into a place where um, the great composers have been, right? Or holding sheet music, yep. right? How's that feel, yep. uh, Marjorie? Really? Well, well, you know, I was a little bit spoiled at Eastman um, because I could go in. Eastman's library is, of course, off the scale in terms of the its collection of manuscripts and things like that. But still, the truth is, when you do that, you're here in the United States. It's a very, very, very different thing to go directly. We, we take the students, to, what's coming to mind right now is we take the students to an archive um, that's connected to the conservatory, the music conservatory in Venice. So they spend the afternoon looking at all these incredible manuscripts and working with my friend Michael on how to do musicological research. And then we go right across the hall that evening for a concert where some of the students might be playing that exact same music. And then we walk out into the city and go and see what performers during Vivaldi's time or Gabrielli's time would have mm-hmm. seen when they were composing music. So it's, it's like coming in from the ground up instead of just observing through the window, suddenly we're in that area and we're eating that food and we're doing those dances. And it's really meaningful for, for the students to, because I, I know for me, it felt like when I first hit Europe, I looked around and I thought, oh my goodness, all of this stuff is true. I thought it was just like a Disney movie, but it's really true. All this stuff really happened and now I'm there. So it changed me as a musician and as a teacher. It probably did. It took you to a higher level, like we always say. Seriously. Yeah. It would. Yeah. That's incredible, Marjorie. It it is. It's just astounding to be somewhere, you know, and then actually be where they were. It's astounding. Well, we're Um, doing it again, actually, this summer. Oh, that'll be really interesting. I love things like that, really. Um. So, you know, when I, I first heard about you, it was up at Lilydale when uh, you did the uh, presentation on mediumistic music. And I want to talk a little bit about, can you define channeled music for people? Well, I think you and your audience probably have a much better understanding of channeled music than I do. I mean, I, I'm sort of approaching it from the outside, largely through my, my studies of oracles and things, but I did, uh, and also through my um, contact with some composers. But for me, channeled music is any kind of music that comes in 
into a person's awareness through a non-conventional way. So mm-hmm. sometimes it can be accidental. A channeled music kind of thing can be accidental. There's a very interesting man named Scott Rogo um, who worked in California. He's passed now, but he wrote several books on something that he called the music of the spheres. And he essentially was collecting, doing field work, collecting stories from people who actually heard music coming through a window or they, they, their perception of it was that it came from outside of them. And it was either when some, they were in a room with someone who was dying or someone who was having a baby or they were out in nature or they were in a, a house that was thought to be haunted. So a lot of these people actually hear music and they describe it as the most beautiful, unearthly kind of music ever. So I think that's a kind of an accidental running into a channeled music. And then there are other people who I think do it in, in a way that's a little bit more like the medium's work at Lilydale, where they put themselves mm-hmm. into a kind of receptive state right. and then they open themselves to music that will come in and they write this music down. And probably, you know, Rosemary Brown is probably the most, the most famous case of that. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, um, and so we talked about the different types of channeled music and right. Are there different types or just, do you mean like genres of music? Like is it yeah. pop music mm-hmm. or classical music? That's what I oh, mean. Oh, I think yeah. anything. Different types. Yes, anything. Some of, there are a lot of people out there that uh, work in the pop sphere, um, pop and jazz, and it's and I think an inter- another interesting sort of subcategory of channeled music. And I hear this a lot, um, or I read this a lot, from people who um, do imp- improvisation, musical improvisation. Is that at a certain point in a performance, you feel as though something else is taking over your body. Taking over. Um, mm-hmm. I understand yeah, I read, a, I read a guitarist at one point say, I right. know that I just heard that solo that I played. He was, a, he was a Jimi Hendrix fan. And he said, I just heard that solo that I played, and I know that I can't do that with my own fingers. He said, at that point in that performance, something took control of my own hands. And that wasn't me playing that with someone else. And I've heard several people who, who have had that experience. And it can happen in any genre, popular music, classical music, anything. Um, that makes sense. I was just thinking about that. Well, he couldn't have picked a better person to help him than Henrik. He was one of the greatest guitarists. Yeah. <clears throat> he was. Um, and and so let's talk about how about some creative people describe channel music like who would you say would was creative and described channel music? What, somebody maybe way back or here, you know, that they described it? Yeah, well, you know, this is really interesting. Of course, I can't um, way back. Okay, I'll, I'll try it this way. Let's try it this way. Okay. Um, I think there's the accidental kind of running into the music of the spheres like Scott Rogo designed. And then right. there's the people who go deliberately and try to channel like a medium. Then okay. I think in the middle, there's a whole category of people who we, who we just describe as talented or creative or whatever. And I don't know if you've ever known any people like that. My mother was like that, actually. She was that way with art, really. Um, you watch those people just go into a zone. Right. And when they're there, you're not quite sure what's happening with them. 
And mm-hmm. lucky for me, I've recently met and worked with at Nazareth an unbelievably gifted composer. And when he describes his way of composing music, it is that he just he doesn't sit down and decide to write something. He just sits down and he listens. And whatever comes to him, he writes down. That's the way he describes his his experience. And I he he doesn't go so far as to say he's channeling someone else. You know, Rosemary Brown used to say she was channeling Franz Liszt or she was channeling Chopin or someone. My colleague doesn't say that. He just says music speaks and I listen. Where is that? I I you know on a, on the scale of channeled music, where is that place where someone sits back and they say they are listening to something coming into them and they're just the they're just the medium through which that music gets written down. And he says, all of my technique, all of my studying, all of the counterpoint and harmony and everything that I, that I studied, that, those are just tools to help me put down on paper what is really coming from somewhere else. And I think a lot of composers hmm. in the past must have been like that. Yeah. Now, Rosemary Brown, did she, I know she channeled different uh, artists, right? Because you did that talk at Lily Dell. Did she have more than one person she channeled with or not? Yes. Well, her story is fascinating. I mean, she, um, she, her, her main contact person was Franz Liszt, who was a very famous 19th century Mm -hmm. composer, great pianist, um, lots of technical stuff that he wrote. He's, a, he's quite a virtuosic pianist, performer, and composer. Um, he was the person who came to her actually as a child. When she was young, she said her first contact with, with him in his uh, personality as an old grandpa-type fellow dressed up like an abbe. And he said, uh, when you get older, I, I'm going to give you music. And so when she was older and she began having this, these experiences, he was the first contact. And her, the way she described it was that he was the person who sort of introduced her to other composers that she also worked with. I think Chopin was a favorite, uh, also Schubert, um, a, little bit, a little bit of Bach, a little bit of Beethoven, um, a little Stravinsky. But it was mostly the 19th century piano composers that se- that she seemed to have a good relationship but her- with. And her description of it always was that they sort of went through list in order to have contact with her. He was the gatekeeper. Okay. That makes, okay. That's fascinating, isn't it? It is. It is, actually. And she also said many times that her feeling, I mean, she heard them, of course, so I, I, I think the word for that is clairaudient, you know, correct? She heard is them, she heard them. yes. Yeah. She heard them telling her, you know, put your finger here, do this, do that. Um, but she said also, every once in a while, she felt actually that they were in her hands, that Franz Liszt would sometimes take over her hand. So again, it's that experience of it's not her own physical body making the music it's someone else and i it kind of reminded reminded me a little bit of when i heard about spirit writing at lily Dale. Right. as it seems that's to me what it is automatic writing mm-hmm. automatic yes writing. right automatic yeah. writing or inspirational writing is another one that you know you're just sitting there and the thoughts are coming and you they're you're writing them down but they're not actually your thoughts they're the thoughts they're not actually you. yours you're no from someone else yes the channel from coming the spirit in. And she, world Mm-hmm. From the spirit world, and she also—I yes. mean, she also was a spiritualist. Now, some of the people that I work, that I've talked to, 
you know, outside of my Lilydale acquaintances, they really don't really mm-hmm. know what spiritualism is. So right. they don't describe their experience in the same way. But I, sitting back from it, make me wonder how close is what they're experiencing to what someone at Lilydale would say, well, oh, obviously this is what a medium does. You know, and Mrs. Brown came from a family of spiritualists, so she framed her experience. She understood what was going on. She, she, she understood it and embraced it, right? That's what I'm thinking. Oh, yes, very much. She did. She knew exactly what it was coming from, and she had she understood how to describe what her experience was in those terms. Mm-hmm. And when I come away from Lilydale then and I talk to my students or colleagues or stuff like that, and I wonder sometimes I could I could interpret what they tell me in exactly that same framework, the spiritualist framework is, oh, this is what's happening to you. But they don't necessarily they don't necessarily feel that they have connected in as close and as easy to describe a way as Mrs. Brown did. Um, did they um, write new music with her at all, or just, I'm just curious. No, she, part okay. of the, part of the, part of the problem, if you want to call it a problem with her, the way her critics dis- describe her is that, Really, she she's writing her own music. Okay. She's not channeling anything from anyone else because it's really the kind of music she wrote was really mm-hmm. only the kind of music that she ever studied as a pianist when she was young. Okay. So she stayed within the same styles and the same genres of what she already knew, and that's one of the one of the critiques that people who may not want to go along with this will say, eh, no, she should be able to write in any style if it's any composer coming in. Oh, well, okay. That answers a question, and I just wondered about that. Um, <clears throat> so now we have two calls. I'm going to see who's on the line. So are you ready to take a call there? Sure. Marjorie? Sure. Okay. Let's, tr- let's try it. Welcome. May we have a first name, please? Hello. This Hello. is Jerry. Hi. Hi, Jerry. Hi. How are you? Hi. I, I was just listening uh, about... Um, I don't know, some of the things about being channeled. Uh, I heard music when my neighbor was passing away, and I was the only one that heard it, and it was like loud, loud, very disturbing music. It wasn't pretty like what she was saying, but um, I just wondered. My husband thought I had a brain tumor or something like that, and I said, it's not coming from inside my head. It's coming from the outside, and then... Shortly after, I don't know, it was maybe six weeks of this went on, and I thought I was going to go crazy. And then he finally passed away, and then it's been, it's, I've been, it's been quiet. So, uh, do you have any comments about something like that? Well, I'm, I'm looking right now to find. Uh, let's see. I think. Well, your experience sounds to me exactly like the kind of stuff that Scott Rogo wrote about. You might want to read, um, so his last name is Rogo, R-O-G-O. His name is D. Scott Rogo. And the book was written back in 1972, and it's called A Psychic Study of the Music of the Spears. Or if you just channel, if you channel, I'm sorry, if you just search his name on the Internet, and you can get a Uh lot of these books for a few dollars on Amazon used, it's a fascinating thing to to read about. The one thing yeah. that you say that is that is different from what I've read so far is that you say the music was disturbing. Most it of the people who have disturbing. 
Disturbing yeah. in what way? How, what did it sound like? Uh, it was well. This is the well, this was the guy's personality. He pl- liked to play loud, disturbing music, and that's the kind oh. of music that that I was hearing. And I thought he actually was playing it, but they, his wife kept assuring me that he, he wasn't. And then eventually he went to the hospital and all that. And I was still hearing the music, hmm. and nobody else was hearing it though. Nobody's hearing it. That's another thing that, that these people describe in Scott's book, that very few people, you know, someone will hear it and no one else is hearing it. it. On a few cases, maybe one or two people will hear it together. But I would recommend that you read those books just because I'm sure you would find that very interesting and just see what sounds familiar and what doesn't sound familiar. Yeah. Because to I, me I it sounds definitely. all normal except for the unpleasantness of the music. <laughs> yeah, I will definitely look at that book. And another thing was, I used to go to this therapist, and she played uh, music while I was just supposed to listen to it. Like you were talking about, I listen, and, you know, you made that remark, I listen, uh, and the music speaks or something like that. Uh, So that's what I would do is I laid in the chair, and I just listened to this music, and then when it was over, I sat in a note with my notebook and just wrote everything that came to me uh, down. And then she was a psychologist, so she interpreted that for me. And it was really right, interesting. Yeah, what was that? That sounds, a little bit, that sounds a little bit more like what uh, the kind of thing that my music therapy students do. They, they get a music degree, but there's also a lot of psychology in their degree. So oh. they, they actually study the way different sounds and different rhythm patterns and things like that interact sort of cognitive, cognitively with people to do things like lower blood pressure and you know, calm people down in various ways. It, that's a very music therapy kind of thing. I think what my colleague is thinking about is the music speaks, but the music is, again, it's nobody's hearing this but him. It's coming in from somewhere inspirationally, not necessarily auditorially. Oh, uh-huh. But, yeah, so that that was very helpful to me. I, I had uh, dealt with fibromyalgia for years, and then I, I wanted to take harp lessons at, in, in my 50s, and I knew I had wanted to do that from the time I was young. And then, you know, just uh, it, I, we didn't have the money or I couldn't find a teacher. And then in my 50s, the teacher just came and I just took the lessons. And, and I thought it would be easy for me because it was something I always wanted to do. And it's quite difficult to learn the whole music therapy and all that. But that's, yeah, that's what – go ahead. Yeah, harp's not, harp's not easy, but you are correct that, that music and pain management is a huge field. You know, it's a big deal. Music is very, very effective when it comes to pain management things. It does help my own my own uh, fibromyalgia pain. It helps me out a lot. It was like you were saying earlier about sitting, uh, being by yourself, that you like to do that, and that's sort of how I am too. I, it really, I can go into that little zone of mine and really feel good about it. And uh, but that's all I wanted to say. With um, I enjoyed your program so far. So thank you very much. Good. Thank you. Hi. Welcome to the show. Thank you, but I'm just listening. Thank you. Oh, you don't want to have a question or anything? Okay. Thank you. Okay, so let's go on. So now you're going to do another presentation in April going to the Bahamas, right? You want to tell us a little bit yeah. what's going on there? 
Yes. Well, I mean, it's a little bit sort of connected to Jerry's question, I think, is this uses of music beyond just performance or uses of music for a healing thing. Um, one of my sub areas of interest has been to study the uh, the phenomenon of the Italian tarantella dance. Right. Um, I grew up in an Italian family, and when I was little, everybody did tarantellas at you know street festivals and weddings and things like that. And I I always sort of understood the sound of the music, but I didn't really understand any of the history of the the folk dance of the tarantella. And so the idea of sort of sympathetic magic and healing, music and healing, the, you know, the whole idea behind the tarantella mm-hmm. dance is that if you're bitten by a spider, you have this venom in your system. And the only way to get rid of the venom is to listen to the right kind of music at the right speed, at the right time of day, and do the right kind of dance. And then the music and the movement has a sympathetic relation to the venom and it draws it out of you. And that's, in a nutshell, that's what the, the, the legendary, magical history of the Tarantella is. For us, it's become just a folk dance or a trope for classical music composers. But in the ancient world and in Italy, all the way into the 20th century, the idea was that if you do these certain kinds of dances, you can be healed by the music. And that's essentially kind of Western, esoteric, magical way of looking at, at music, and so what's happening in April in the Bahamas is a bunch of people associated with the New York Open Center, um, which it, is focused on Western esotericism, things like alchemy, things like Neoplatonism, the Tarantella, those kinds of things. We're all heading to an ashram in the Bahamas where the people are focused largely on Eastern esoteric traditions, things like yoga, transcendental meditation, those kinds mm-hmm. of things. So our trip to the Bahamas is essentially to bring the Western idea of esoteric traditions that can help and can heal to bring those to meet the Eastern. So it's going to be kind of East meets West thing. And, and they call and, it sort of like, the things, I'm sorry, go ahead. I know, so I mean, one of the things I will do there actually, I think, is I, I will give a paper on the Tarantella, but I'm actually going to teach a workshop then the next day in, in case people want to experiment with the dance, the folk dance. That's interesting. They do that around here at street fairs. Does that make sense? At what? They do that at street fairs. What's that? There's a um, place around here that's, uh, it's an Italian dance, correct? And they do it at a festival. They do it at one of the festivals around here. Well, I think, you know, when I was a kid and I, and I used to go to weddings, family weddings, I would always see my uncles get on the dance floor. A certain kind of music would start and my uncles would get out and they'd start waving their fingers around over their heads and dance back and forth at each other, almost like they were having a fight. And I had no idea what they were doing. And I'm sure they had no idea what they were doing. But when I actually started researching the history of the dance, I realized that that goes back to a very, very old tradition of men sort of working out aggression by doing a certain kind of tarantella that's a sword dance where they would actually tie swords or long knives to their hands and sort of dance around each other and poke at each other without really drawing blood. But it was sort of a good way to just work out the aggression. It's a certain kind of tarantella with a certain kind of instrumental sound. And the minute you hear it, you know, ah, this is the moment to let out that particular kind of tension. There's an awful lot of psychology that goes on here. It's not really, I think, so much the music and the rhythm as much as it 
the music provides a psychological space for you to do or say or feel unacceptable things, you know, that are, that are creating pressure. Okay. So I understand that. So, so you're going to do a workshop on it. Are you going to teach the people the technique of how to do the dance? Well, I'm not qualified. I mean, there's, there's a woman uh, in New York city. Her name is Alessandra Baloney. And mm-hmm. I took a workshop on, on Tarantella dancing with her last February. And she's really, she does the real thing. She does the actual, she plays the drum and she gets into the sort of, you know, people are rolling around on the floor and letting out whatever bothers them. So she does the real healing kind of dance. What I'm qualified to do and what, and what I learned from her was one of the sort of folk dance adaptations of how you do this. You know, I mean, this phenomenon happens all the time in the arts is there'll be something that's real, some, some experience that is real, and then it gets sort of turned into an artistic version. And the Tarantella folk dance that she taught me to you to do is a dance that sort of calls up the memory of certain movements that happen in the actual therapeutic musical ritual, but it's not the same thing. You know, the, the ancient ritual of being healed by music was quite a phenomenon. I mean, someone would be sick, they'd fall down on the floor and then a band had to come and play just the right music with just the right instrument and make that person sort of come back to life. And, and in, in part of the healing, they would often do movements that imitated a spider. But that's, a, that's the healing ritual. What happens when we get to the folk dance is there will be certain stomping things or certain finger-waving things that remind you a little bit of the movements of the spider. But it's a folk dance. It's one thing removed from the actual healing ritual, if that makes sense. It's kind of complicated. No, it does. And how did you feel after you did that with, in the class? Well, it was interesting. It was very interesting. I mean, the first thing she did was, teaching, was teach us drumming patterns, which was wonderful. Okay. Learning, even learning the drumming puts you into a sort of trance-like frame of mind almost because you do the same pattern over and over and over again. So learning the drumming was great. And then she taught us the folk dance first. I think largely so we could just sort of work our way into the the next level. And the class kind of ended with our actually trying to do a healing ritual where we each had a had a moment where we could get down on the floor and see what happened. And I was really impressed with a lot of the people, a lot of it seems like pent up anger and pent mm-hmm. up fear or pent up sadness came out. And it, you come out of the end of that having had a kind of a purgative experience. Right. There's also, I should say, a lot of spinning involved. You you spend a lot of time, sometimes hours, just spinning slowly in circles. And that spinning thing also creates quite an interesting psychological, uh, I don't know, effect. I find that fascinating, Marjorie. It's, it's it is. It was very have... interesting for me. Yeah. She was a good teacher. She was a very good teacher. I just find it fascinating. And I'm sure it helped a lot of people. They had some penned up issues. It did, it did, and it was a good place. the The workshop took place on an organic farm um, in Hawaii, on Oahu, and so we were a little bit separated from the world. And mm-hmm. it was a really good place to just sort of spend a lot of time meditating on the meaning of the dance, the rhythms, the the music, um, and getting to know a very small group of people fairly fairly well and fairly intimately. That's wonderful. I'm sure everybody walked away with a new experience. 
within themselves. We did, as and well. with the drum. We all got great drums. We 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 bought right. really nice drums. I still play my drum. It's been a year now, and I'm still playing my drum. Well, that's good. That's really good. It is. Um, and I noticed that. Okay, so you're going to do another presentation at Willowdale this July, right? Right. Okay, so you want to talk a little bit about that as well and tell our viewers what's going to be going on? Yeah, I mean, I, the program looks really, really amazing. I, I think I'm one of the lighter lighter weight speakers on the program, but um, my, my, my talk is going to have something to do with oracles, the idea of oracles, Sibylline oracles spe- specifically, the Sibyls from the ancient world sort of are a specialty study of mine. And really, one of the reasons I would like to give this talk at Lilydale is because really Lilydale was was kind of important in my choosing of my dissertation topic um, many, many years ago, back in the 90s. I'd never heard of Lilydale, but I played gigs with a guitarist, and one day in the car I was trying to explain to her what a sibyl was. And I said, a sibyl is a woman in ancient Greece or the ancient world somewhere who sort of empties her mind and she becomes the vehicle for the voice of the god Apollo when people want to ask questions of the god, like, you know, should I buy a cow? Should I attack Italy? Should I do whatever? The Sibyl empties her mind and the god speaks through her. And my guitarist friend said, oh, you really should go to this place called Lilydale. You know, there are people there who do sort of the same thing. It's not god speaking through them, but you should you should go watch them work. And so a little while later, I went down and... I was sitting, and my first visit to Lilydale, I was sitting in the front row, and a student medium came up to me and said, can I speak to you? And I said, yes. And he said, well, someone is here who says that you're very good at performing music and that you're studying the performance of music and you're really good at it. You know, you could play in an orchestra. And, I, and at the time, I was in the doctoral per- program in performance at Eastman. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, yeah, you know, that's probably true. And he said, but now she's telling me that's not what you should do. Instead, playing music is only a gateway for you into what you should really be doing. And what you really should be doing is studying the music of the spears. Does that make any sense to you? And he looked very upset. And I said, yes, it does, actually. And he said, oh, good. And he walked away. <laughs> because it, it was clear to me that for him that message meant nothing. But for me it meant that I was on the right track and that, playing music was really a gateway for me to instead get into the cultural study of music, which in music history language really is the study of the music of the spheres. It's the academic study of music. So Lilydale was great. So when I, when I go down and talk about Sibyls and Sibylline prophecy, I'm going to actually hope I get a lot of questions from the audience because I think people there will actually, I am not a medium myself, but I'm sure that many of the people who come to this conference will have had a lot of mediumistic experience and I'd be very curious on what their experience, how it relates to whatever I might say about this kind of special version of mediumship in the ancient world. What threw you to pick this topic, if I may ask? Well, I I sang in my little group where my little group at Eastman. I had a very mm-hmm. good teacher who was very good at pulling up interesting pieces of music from the Renaissance for us to get together once a week and sing. And one day he brought in a piece called the Prophetiae Sibilarum, or the Prophecies of the Sibyls, by a, a Renaissance composer named Orlando di Lasso. And he put it in front of us, and we read it by just reading our own part. It's four parts, soprano, alto, tenor, bass. But in front of us, we only had our own part. 
And I looked at my alto part and I thought, hmm, this is a little unusual. There's an unusual number of sharps and flats here, but oh well. And then we started singing it. And those sharps and flats turned out to be little signposts that took you to an entirely different and completely unexpected tonal level. Singing that piece of music was like slipping on a banana peel in terms of tonality every couple of bars. And I was feeling this turning over feeling inside me and I kind of a, a, a transformational feeling. It was a, I, the only way I can explain it is that the music moved me from one place to another, to another so fast that I didn't really even have time to think. And I came out of that experience very, very different. And I thought, okay, I have to find out what's going on in this piece of music. And so that became my dissertation topic. And that's how I got to learn about Sybils. And then that's how I've, came to Lilydale for the first time. That's truly interesting. I wondered how you picked that topic because not everybody picks that topic. No, it's a strange, it's a strange piece. And, uh, you know, for a musicologist, it was a little bit risky. I mean, musicology people usually, we do a couple of things. We either analyze music, you know, which is great because you can grab the score and describe what's going on in terms of the harmonic language of the time. Or we do archival study, and that's where you go back and you find out all of the, you look at all the records behind a piece of music or a genre or a phenomenon. And this piece of music, I discovered very quickly, had no history. There was only one copy of it in the whole world. Nobody knew who it was for, written for. Nobody knew why it was so chromatic. Nobody knew why he chose those texts. There's no other setting of those texts. It's a piece of music that kind of came out of nowhere and went nowhere. It just exists like this kink in the continuum of music historical style. And so I couldn't approach it through an analysis or archival work. The only thing I could do was look at the subject of Sibyls and try to figure out what Sibyls would have meant in Renaissance Italy during this composer's time. And might that tell me anything about the music? And it was really, I, I still don't know if anything I discovered is absolutely true, but I know I found things that could very likely be true and might, with a good, with luck, lead to our looking in other areas for more archival information on this piece. So I think the jury is still out. But for me, it was a, it was a fascinating study to try to connect unusual sounds to an unusual phenomenon in Italian culture at that time. And that's what you're going to be talking about up at Lilydale? I think a little bit. I'll talk a little bit about Sybils and what they are, and I'll talk a little bit about the musical experience, and then I'm thinking the audience will probably have lots of things they'll want to contribute so we can make it a discussion as well. Yeah, that'll be good, because I'm sure everybody will have something to contribute to that. Um, <clears throat> well, there's always a question that I like to ask at the end, and so I'm going to ask you this. <clears throat> I'd like to know who inspired you on this, this great journey you have endeavored on? Hmm. You know, the question for that is either really, or the answer to that is really narrow or really broad. I, I, I guess I'd put it this way. My most inspirational people, I think, have been my teachers, and that would include my parents. You know, not all of my teachers, but there are some teachers that have just changed my life when I met them. And there's five or six of them all the way up, you know, from, from the time I was in kindergarten to now. But, of course, you know, the big, the big one is probably my mom and my dad, first and foremost. 
because they were inspiring people. Yeah, they. Yeah, I'm sure they were, and and you, I'm sure you've pleased them every step of the way. What I like about you, you take the music to a different level. You know what I mean? You really do. Well, thank you. That's that's nice. I think they led me in that direction. So. Well, I, I mean, I certainly see you taking the music to a different level than a lot of people would not endeavor on. Do you understand that? I think so, yes. Good. Because just by doing the symbols, I mean, that's a different level right there with that piece of music you talked about. I find that fascinating as well. Well, I think a lot of people have that kind of experience. You know, for me, Renaissance church music is just the thing that knocks my socks off. But mm-hmm. it really can happen to anybody in any genre, any kind of music, pop music, jazz, other kinds of classical music. Everybody finds that, that gateway where there's that one piece of music that just opens up a door and takes you to a different level. And if you follow it, if you follow it, it really changes your life. And I think sometimes that's why a lot of musicians seem healthy and grounded because they follow it and they don't question it. They just go with the music. And that works out well when you do that. When you don't don't get all bent out of shape about it and try to explain it, if you just go with it. I think all of the arts do that, but music is just the one I know best. And it's changed you in many different ways, right? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yes. I would, I, you know, we don't make a lot of money. We people who teach and teach music uh-huh. and things like that, we don't make a lot of money, but we're very happy people usually. <laughs> because this is you you're doing happy. what comes from inside. From within. And that's wonderful. Yeah, from within. That's wonderful, Marjorie. <clears throat> well, you certainly have contributed to humanity by doing the things you do. Oh, well, thank you. And, you know, I probably see you up at Lilydale for this, this oh, ne- next talk nice. you're going to do. You know, I will. Sure. So I want to say good night to you and thank you very much for being a guest with us. It's been enlightening. Well, thank you for asking me. And I hope our paths cross again. Take care, Marjorie. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, all you truth seekers out there, that concludes our show for tonight. And remember... I want to thank all the truth seekers for listening tonight. Till we meet again, may you be the light that helps others see.